So the person doing our session today is going to be the one, the only, Her Majesty Rosberg, <laughs> Queen, Queen of Church Society. Queen of Church Society and what she surveys. Uh, Ros, we know the reason everyone is, is really here is that we're dying to know what was the latest thing to come out on Craft You. Thank you, yes, good. Uh, uh, so I do, I have a little YouTube channel. Um, it, is, it is really little. Um, but do feel free to, to watch, like, and subscribe and share it with, with all your friends. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and comment and click the notification <laughs> bell. Uh, it's called Ros Clark Craft, which may give you a clue that it's mostly about the things that I like to make. I mean, you know, there's some other stuff there as well. Um, but mostly it's... Uh, what do I do? I do... Well, I, I used to do a lot of knitting and crochet. I do this much right now. Dressmaking, cross-stitch... Uh, embroidery, painting sometimes, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and what you may not know uh, is that, particularly cross-stitch, there is an enormous YouTube community for it because it's the kind of thing you do and, and sort of need something to watch while you're doing it. So everybody watches everybody else's cross-stitch videos while they are cross-stitching. And, you know, there are people, there are many thousands of channels with many, many thousands of, of viewers. Mine, mine does not have thousands. Can you send us links to that? Because I'm missing out on all this. Yeah, well, if you just Google Ros Clark Craft, it all comes up. Uh, so there, there we go. And, and actually, the really exciting announcement, which Eleanor didn't know, she was not primed to ask about this, is that... In the next week or two, I shall be announcing the, the launch of my Etsy shop, uh, which will be purveying cross-stitch and knitting patterns for your crafting pleasure. There you go. Um, so, Ros, when you're not very, very yeah. busy creating uh, cross-stitch patterns, yes. what do you do and, and why are you actually here? Well, uh, no, no, this is good. So, what do I actually do? Do, I mean, I am paid by church society, uh, so I do feel obliged to do some work for them. Uh, I mostly tell Lee what to do and what not to do. Um, <laughs> I, I do a lot of things for church society. I produce our quarterly magazine, Crossway. You'll find free copies over there. Um, I oversee our online content, um, our podcast, our website, all of those kind of things. Um, I also, for the last few years, as part of my job, run a training programme for women, uh, the Priscilla programme. It's an online course that we do in partnership with Union uh, School of Theology. And um, uh, it's aimed at ordinary women in churches. So not people who are thinking, oh, maybe the Lord's calling me into full-time ministry or into a paid role, but the kind of women that you think... I'd, you know, she'd be a terrific Bible study group leader, Sunday school teacher, pastoral visitor. But actually, it'd be really great if she had a little bit more training to help her in understanding the Bible, in understanding some doctrine. Uh, there are modules on evangelism and apologetics, ethics and pastoral care. We do a little bit of church history. Um, it's all online and... Um, People, uh, particularly in the last few years, have found that it's been a wonderful constant through the ever-changing uh, life that we have been living. It has just been able to keep going. Uh, everybody gets a cheater. Eleanor is one of our, our cheaters. Um, and, yeah, so um, it, I'm looking out in the room and, and not absolutely seeing my target <laughs> audience, but <laughs> I bet there are... that all of you are in churches where there are some women. 
I mean, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say I think probably you all have some women in your churches who would benefit uh, from this. So do. Uh, if you want to know a bit more about that, come and ask me or Eleanor. Uh, Steve's wife has done a, a module or two as well. So, you know, we'd love to, to tell you a bit more about that. Fantastic. Um, Ros, you've just told me very distressingly that my currently my tutor group has only got one person in it. So how can everyone help rectify this situation so right. that I am not alone? Yeah, I mean, it is... We are, I, I think I did say deadline for applications for new students was the end of August. But, you know, if you get in really quick, it's, it's probably not too late but but please do tell women in your shops about it if you want information we have printed leaflets uh, I've only got one here with me but we can send you some there's also information all over the church study website or email me and it, and if you want to pass on my email and people can get in touch with me directly uh, they're welcome to do that Fantastic. Well, amongst everything else that Ros does she's also going to talk to us about laity this morning uh, so I'm just going to pray for you Lovely. before you do that Father God, uh, we lift trust to you now. We pray that you give her um, wisdom and knowledge to show us the beauty uh, of every member ministry and, and what it means um, to be laity in your church in relating to, to bishops and presbyters and deacons. Um, and we pray you bless us all and may we learn much in a way that blesses our congregations this morning. Amen. Amen. Good. Thank you, Eleanor. just... No, I'm sorry, I haven't got a PowerPoint. You're just going to have to stay awake on your own best efforts. Good. Well, I don't suppose that John Henry Newman has often been quoted at Jake, um, but I believe it was him who, when he was asked what the purpose of the laity was, said, well, the clergy would look pretty silly without them. I mean, there may be some truth in that, uh, but clergy, in my experience, don't need any help from lay people to look silly. Uh, and as usual, uh, I think Newman does get things the wrong way around. The laity don't exist for the benefit of the clergy. The clergy exist for the benefit of the lay people. So as usual, I think probably we do rather better if we begin with the Bible rather than Cardinal Newman. Uh, the term laity or lay people comes, I'm sure you know, from the Greek word laos, which simply means people. Uh, it can uh, refer to a people group, a sort of tribe or a nation or uh, an ethnicity or something like that. Or it can simply just be the people, the people who are gathered together at a particular time or in a particular place. I'm afraid uh, since the word laos does just mean people, lay people... I mean, it is, it is a pretty ubiquitous tautology, up with which I fear we must put. Um, yes. So, anyway, I, when we think about laity with respect to the church, um, I think we need to understand it both as a way of referring to the people of God as a, a nation and a tribe, as a, and our, our identity is as a member of the people of God, um, but also a way of indicating that we are just talking about everyone in the church. It is not a special group, it's just the people. Um, it was pretty early on, I think, in the church's history that the term laity was first used in a slightly different way to distinguish people who were not ordained 
from people who were ordained. So I think you can trace it back to as far as Clement of Rome in the first century AD, who um, sort of made links between clergy in the church with the Roman ordo, those who had a particular status, and lay people with the plebs. And those were not two different groups of people who were part of the same laity. You couldn't be both a pleb and an ordo, I think. I think you were one or the other. And that is how we quite often use the term in the church today, isn't it? So, for example, in Church of England synodical structures, there are the house of laity and the house of clergy. And you cannot be in both. If you are elected to synod as a lay person, but then you get ordained, you have to stand down. You can't just automatically go into the House of Clergy because you weren't elected to that, um, but you no longer can you stand in the, the House of Laity because you've been ordained. And so there are times where it's very convenient to be able to talk about clergy and lay people as separate groups. But I don't really think there is biblical warrant for that. And there are things that we lose if we start to think in those ways. So this is how uh, Peter describes the whole church in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, this verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you are not one of God's people, you have not received mercy and you remain in darkness. If you are not one of the laos, if you are not a lay person, you are not one of God's people. And actually, I think we've seen this pattern throughout this whole conference. Rob told us on Tuesday that, that bishops are just presbyters with a, a different uh, kind of responsibility, presbyters to the presbyters. Presbyters, uh, we were reminded yesterday, always remain deacons. And bishops, presbyters, deacons alike are all lay people. More important than any order of ministry is your place in the people of God. This is something of a, an excursus, which is not really uh, on topic, but I, I just felt it was a really important thing to say, and, and it seemed like this is as good a, a place as, as any to say it. Um, I just want to say to you, and this may feel like an odd thing to say to people who are at this junior stage of ministry, it is okay if the right thing for you to do at some point is leave full-time ministry. I was recently uh, talking to someone who'd had um, some quite bad experiences as a curate uh, and later on in his ministry, and he wasn't at all sure whether God really was calling him to continue in ordained ministry. And, and I was quite shocked when he told me that when he first uh, had been thinking about ministry, when he was at this sort of stage, a couple of people who he really respected very greatly, people whose names I'm, I'm sure many of you will know, had told him in no uncertain terms that ministry was for life. That once you were in, you had to stick it out no matter what. 
And, and the person I was talking to had eventually managed to work out for himself that actually that wasn't necessarily true, but it had been quite a hard process for him. So that's really why I wanted to say it to you now. I don't, I don't think anyone in this room is, is at this point, um, but it may be that the time will come where the right thing for you to do is to leave full-time ministry. Uh, you might do that if, if the pressures on you in ministry are such that your own faith is coming into a point of crisis. It is more important that you keep your place in the people of God than you continue in ministry. It might be right to leave if you find that your family and their trust in the Lord is suffering uh, to the point that you are concerned for their salvation to leave. Um, it might be uh, right to leave if you fear that the role you have, the status you have, is tempting you into sins such as pride and arrogance and bullying and you can't find a way out of those while continuing in ministry. It is better to leave than fall into that kind of sin. Better to leave than fall into scandal. Better to leave than end up resenting the people you're ministering to. So I just, I just want to throw that out there, really. Um, Maybe at some point it will be a helpful word uh, that the Lord will, will call back to you uh, at a time in the future. And, and I want to say there is no shame in doing that, if that is the right thing for you to do. Anyway, back to being uh, lay people. I guess I struggle quite a lot uh, with knowing what to talk about in this session, because unlike bishops, presbyters and deacons, I don't think probably we need to spend a lot of time working out who we are talking about or how the Bible uh, sets up what it means to be a lay person, or how the understanding of laity has developed throughout church history. I mean, we're just talking about the people of God. So, uh, Christians, people in the pews and people in the pulpit. So eventually I I narrowed my focus down a little bit. Uh, I'm going to talk about two characteristics of being laity that I I want us to think about a bit. And also at the end we will talk a bit about particular roles that lay people have in the Church of England uh, today. So the first thing I want to talk about is the ordinariness of the laity. The ordinariness of the laity. Sometime uh, back in the last millennium, I used to be a teacher. And uh, one of the aspects of school I particularly hated, I mean, one aspect of schools I particularly hated was they were full of children, which, I mean, it's, you know. But but one other aspect that I wasn't really fond of was the unrelenting emphasis on excellence. Satisfactory was pretty commonly interpreted as unsatisfactory. It wasn't good enough. To get satisfactory. Many schools were not even satisfied by being rated as good. Excellence was demanded. And, and what was true of the whole school was also true of students. Everyone was supposed to excel at something. So one year we had a, a truly horrific inset day uh, led by an expert, so-called expert, in neuro-linguistic programming. And, and I remember at one point he asked us all to make a list of all the geniuses we taught. I mean, my list, you may imagine, was was short to the point of non-existent. I I didn't think there were any geniuses in the school, but but apparently everyone else had three or four in each class. I mean, 
excellence was was you know the the watchword and therefore we were supposed to spot it everywhere but the reality is that most people's inner school will not be truly excellent at anything most will not become olympic athletes or best-selling musicians or tech billionaires or nobel prize winning physicists or turner prize winning artists most of them will be ordinary most of us are ordinary I mean, ordinary in, in unique and quirky and complicated and, and messy, interesting ways, but ordinary. And that is okay. It is okay to earn an average wage or live in an average house, to have an ordinary <coughs> job that actually millions of other people could also do and you don't have to feel a special vocation for. It's okay to be ordinary looking or moderately good at, I don't know, kicking a football and moderately bad at karaoke. Most people are ordinary, and most people in our churches will be ordinary, and at least, if they are not, they should be. They were in Corinth, remember. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And that was not accidental. God deliberately chose ordinary people. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Well, I don't know, maybe you never do this, but maybe sometimes you look out at your congregation and you wish, maybe you even pray, that God would send you just a few more people with a bit more wisdom, a bit more influence, a bit more money, more talents. Think what you could do if someone turned up next Sunday with a, a tremendous gift for teaching children or someone who is incredibly well-connected in local society, could open all kinds of doors for the gospel or someone with the money to fund a new project or a new staff member. But God chose the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things, and the despised things. Every single person sitting in your church is chosen by God. And God is not putting together some kind of fantasy football team of a church to take on all comers. He is choosing people so that no one may boast. It's an ugly thing when churches boast. I know I won't be the only one here who has listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast uh, in the last few months. And, and if you haven't, I, I do think it is worth your time, whether you have any interest in, in Mark Driscoll or not. I think there's some, some really interesting, important lessons for the church as a whole uh, from the podcast. But one of the things that comes across very clearly is just how boastful Mark Driscoll was and how boastful Mars Hill people were about their church. His church was bigger. His budget was certainly bigger. His staff team was bigger. And for him, bigger clearly meant better. He would say, what do I have to learn from men who've been in ministry for far longer, men whose names are well-respected? Well, nothing, because his church is already bigger than theirs. That kind of boasting is a warning sign right there. We need to remember that whatever our church does... Whatever growth we see, whatever signs of maturity there are 
It is all God's work. And we know that to be true, I hope, but it is easier to remember that it is God's work when we can clearly see the weakness and ineffectiveness and incompetence of the people that God is using. We are less tempted to think, oh, it's because they're really good. One way it may be helpful to think about this is uh, to consider some of the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the people of God. Well, we're sheep. Sheep, uh, I, I live on a farm with sheep, and I can tell you for a fact they are stupid, helpless, vulnerable to attack. They need to be led and they need to be protected. Also delicious. <laughs> that wasn't the line of comparison I was going to draw. Please don't eat your flock. Um, good. We, we are stones, aren't we, in the building? Stones that are pretty solid and inactive and don't do much to help themselves. We need someone to put us in the right place and then something that will hold us there in place. We're plants. Someone else has sown the seed, someone else has watered it, God's made it grow. I don't know what the plant has done for itself. We're body parts. Body parts do have a function, mostly. I mean, some of us might be the appendix, but, but most of us, you know, will be a body part with a function. But pretty useless without all the others. I mean, that's part of the point of 1 Corinthians 12. You know, that I can't say to the hand, I don't need you, because it really does. We're family members, loved and precious, but not because of what we can do. We're loved and precious because we're bought by Christ's blood and have been adopted into Christ's family. When I was thinking about uh, this and, and what sort of family members we, we might want to think of ourselves as, I think we are most like the toddlers, stumbling around, getting in the way, most in the way when we are trying to help. If you ever tried to do something with a toddler helping you, you will know it takes four times as long and won't be done as well as if you just did it yourself. That is the kind of family member I think we often are in the church. So stupid, vulnerable, helpless, pretty inactive, stumbling, toddlering. I mean, does any of that sound like the people in your church? I mean, I hope it does, because that is what we're supposed to be like. We are a bit stupid and slow to learn. We do need someone to lead us and protect us and put us in the right place and, and prop us up and, and help us to muddle through somehow. I think that's reassuring. I don't know what you're uh, going back to today or what you're looking forward to in the next uh, few months, but maybe it is a world full of fussy flower arrangers and, and overzealous organists, or uh, maybe it will be a world of semi-literate church wardens who can't really fill in forms without your help, or you know, people like Betty who's always been cleaning the brasses on Thursday morning for the last 75 years and doesn't know what she'll do if you start a new toddler group because there'll be children everywhere but she'll still be the cleaning the brasses because it's Thursday morning. That is what church life is meant to be like. It is not meant to be impressive. It's not meant to be glamorous. It is meant to be ordinary. What do ordinary people need from their ministers? Well, we need the good news of the gospel and we need someone to tell us what to do about it this week. We, we want meat and solid food. We want the whole counsel of God. But we want the word and we want it preached. That, that is certainly what I want from my vicar. I, I don't need him to be my lecturer. But nor does anyone else sitting next to me. 
There may be people who want to study harder and learn more and, and search the scriptures, and that's great, and provide opportunities for them to do that. But what we all need most is the word preached to our sinful hearts, the old, old story of God's grace to warm us. We need to be challenged to face up to the, the previously unsuspected depths of our own sin. We need to be inspired with a vision of the new heavens and new earth. We need to be pastored by someone who knows us and loves us and who can bring God's word to bear on the realities of our lives, our ordinary lives. So if you're a minister, preach to the people, pastor them, guide them, guard them with all your strength, plant the seeds and water them and pray that God will make them grow. But remember, you need that too. Whether you are a, a presbyter or a deacon or even a bishop, you are a person, a stupid sheep, a stumbling toddler, a dependent body part. Who will preach to you and pastor you? Who is guarding you and guiding you and praying for you? Well, you're bishop in an ideal world. But failing that, find someone else. Maybe you need a, a kind of mutual pastoral relationship with, with other people in ministry. Or maybe you need to be looking for a mentor or a senior minister, someone perhaps outside of your church, probably not your training incumbent or, or your um, you know, senior minister in your church, but somebody outside that perhaps who can be honest with you and you can be honest with them and vulnerable with them. Someone who will pray for you and pastor you and preach the word into your heart and your life. God's people are ordinary and uh, th this, again, is slightly tangential, but I'm going to say it. We all need the ordinary means of grace, which is to say the word and the sacrament. Don't underestimate how important the sacraments are in building God's people up in their faith and building them together into a people. They are a tangible expression of our union with Christ and our unity with each other. Don't be afraid of having communion too often any more than you would be afraid of preaching a sermon too often. People need it, and you need it. Because while the people are very ordinary, they are also, and this is my second point, very precious. We already mentioned that the Bible describes us as family members, members of God's family. We are his precious children. We are brothers and sisters Lord Jesus Christ. Children tend to be adored and cherished in their family. Even when they are at the stage of doing nothing except sleeping, pooing and eating. We certainly don't weigh their value on the basis of their abilities or contributions. And nor should we do so with our church family members. They are not precious because of what they can do. They are precious because they are loved by God. Children need to be fed and disciplined. They need to be taught and guided and brought to maturity. And, and as children grow up, they are able to contribute to family life in, in new ways. And the same is true in our church family. As we grow in maturity and faith, we are able to contribute in new ways. But we are no more loved or precious than when we first believed. And since we're family members, we need to uh, bear in mind that all ministry 
happens in the context of a family. That's why Paul tells Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. You know, there may come a time where you will need to teach or correct somebody who is your elder in the church, maybe older in years and maybe even older in the faith. I'm not saying you shouldn't teach and correct them. Paul doesn't say don't teach or correct him. But do it in a way that honours that person. <clears throat> Treat them as if they were your own parent. Honour them, love them, recognise that they have greater wisdom and experience. Treat them as a precious part of the family, even as you pastor them. As I've been uh, thinking about this over the last week, the, the latest in you know the whole series of church scandals that we seem to, to be getting at the moment broke. This one uh, in America, uh, concerning a pastor who'd been exchanging inappropriate private messages online with a woman. What does Paul say to that? Well, he says, treat the women in your churches as sisters with absolute purity. Sisters are not people that you hold at a distance. You don't have to apply a Billy Graham rule if you're going out for dinner with your sister. But... You do treat your sisters, I hope, as precious and beloved. You protect them, you guard them, you care for them. I don't think the reason Paul tells Timothy to treat women as sisters is to protect Timothy's reputation. It's not for his benefit. It's for the sake of the women who deserve to be honoured and loved in that way. The people of God are precious family members. You must treat them as your family and let them treat you as theirs. Let them be kind to you and to your family. Let them help you when you need it. Let them love you as you love them. Well, there's a second description of the people of God which highlights our honoured status. That of priests. A royal priesthood, Peter called us just as Moses described the Israelites back in Exodus 19. Now, these are not presbyter priests. These are sacerdos priests. Not because we offer actual sacrifices, but priests who, like the Old Testament priests, have the right to enter into the most holy place. So Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The door into God's most holy place is open to every one of us, brothers and sisters. Christ has opened that way by his body. And that means that you and I and every single member of the household of God can walk into that throne room with full assurance, washed and forgiven, redeemed and restored, made fit to face the Almighty Lord, our Heavenly Father. To be the very least in the kingdom is still to be a royal priest in the Holy of Holies. That's how we know 
that the people, the laity, are infinitely valuable because Christ himself considered every one of us worth dying for. God considers every one of us worthy through Christ to stand in his presence. That is why you must never think that lay people are somehow less important, less worthy, less valuable than those who have been ordained. Because God doesn't. And that is why, that despite the, the etymology lesson that we had on Tuesday from, from Lee, I do still have some qualms about using the word priest in place of presbyter. When we start to describe certain people as priests but not others, it's easy to forget that actually we are all priests. If you are ordained, you do not have any greater access to God than the rest of us. You do not have any special holy status. You don't have a special priestly hotline for your prayers. You are a priest, and so am I. I am a lay person, and so are you. Which brings us back to what we've been talking about throughout this conference, the orders of ministry, which are simply that, orders of ministry, different ways of serving the household of God. You might be a deacon, that is a servant, or a, a presbyter, that is an elder. You might be a bishop or an overseer, a presbyter to the presbyters. But whether that's the way in which you serve, or whether you serve by making tea and coffee after church, or running a creche, or helping with admin, or being associate director of a parachurch organisation, we're all members of the same household, the same family, contributing to family life, muddling through together as ordinary, precious people. Laity. Well, much more briefly, uh, some of the ways in which we need lay people who are not ordained, and, and I do realise it is convenient if you have a term to describe lay people who are not also <laughs> ordained people, uh, in the Church of England. Um, I'm not going to look at it in detail now, and, and we've seen these passages before in the last couple of days uh, as we've thought about elders and, and deacons. But I think you can see from Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 5 that there were some people in New Testament churches, at least, who had different kinds of responsibilities in church, but who were not set aside for the ministry of the word. And in, in Acts 6, those people were called deacons. And in 1 Timothy, they were elders, but elders uh, who, who were not those who were in a preaching and teaching ministry. I'm not, I'm not going to try and, and pick apart uh, where we are with, with what all of those mean. I think we've done probably enough of that in the last couple of days. But I do want to say I think there is some basis there to suggest that there is a role for lay leadership in the church today. I think some of those people would, were in roles that today the most uh, obvious equivalent would be church warden or PCC member, for example. And I, I do think we can say it is biblical to recognise that some of those lay people have leadership gifts, and if they are filled with the spirit and wisdom, so you know, not just anyone because they happen to be good at that in their everyday life, but if they are also filled with the spirit and wisdom, encourage them to use those gifts in the church. 130 years ago, in a, a church association tract, that is, um, church, church association is a forerunner of church society, so published by us, uh, Bishop uh, J.C. Ryle proposed some radical reforms 
for involving lay people much more deeply in church structures. Uh, these included things like uh, convocations, that is what we now call synods, should have equal numbers of laity and clergy. No diocese ought to be governed by a bishop alone without the aid of a lay privy council. No parochial clergyman ought to attempt the management of his parish or congregation without constantly consulting the laity. No appointment to a living or cure of souls ought ever to be made without allowing the laity a voice in the matter. No system of ecclesiastical discipline ought ever to be sanctioned which does not give a principal place to the laity. Well, I don't think the last has really uh, come to pass, but the first four have all more or less been implemented. Church wardens and PCC members must be lay people. Clergy are not permitted to join an electoral role or stand for election to those roles. Deanery and diocesan synods have required numbers of lay people, and in general synod, uh, there must be a house of laity. As I mentioned previously, you cannot be part of that if you are ordained. Finance committees, diocesan boards of education, safeguarding teams, and many, many more need lay people with particular kinds of expertise to come into service of the church. And in these days of clergy shortages, lay people will often be employed by the church in a variety of roles, in a parish, occasionally in a deanery, in a diocese, or a national church institution. Lay people have a, an important role in the appointment of every incumbent, every diocesan bishop, and every archbishop. The church desperately needs its lay people, not just because the church wouldn't exist if there were no lay people, but the church would not function, at least in its current form, if lay people did not stand, step up and get involved. I have to say, so I, I mentioned that, that J.C. Ryle wrote these things 130 years ago and there's been a, a huge shift in that time. You can see that. Lay people were not involved in any of those ways at the end of the 19th century, and they now are. I have to say, I think there may be another huge shift coming in the next 20 to 30 years, maybe 50 years, because people these days simply do not have the capacity for volunteer work that was common at least in certain parts of society 50 years ago, 100 years ago. That, that's not just a church thing. You may be very frustrated that people in your church just don't have time to step up and do things you'd like them to. But actually it's a, a, thing, a trend in society as a whole. Many more families are two-income families. Many people live incredibly busy lives because... You know, not for bad reasons, but, you know, maybe their extended family, their elderly parents live on the other side of the country. They, they, they need to go and visit them, whereas 100 years ago, they'd be much more likely to be just around the corner and it wouldn't take a whole weekend. You know, there are good reasons why people just don't have the capacity anymore. And I don't know what happens if there simply aren't enough people to form all the endless committees or stand for all the various elections and, and at what point that sort of breaks down and the systems have to change again. But at the moment, there is a huge open door for lay people to step up and take hold of the Church of England. And if we can persuade more people from our evangelical churches to do that, there really is a huge opportunity. Um, we have, in the last couple of years, in my diocese, really re reactivated our diocesan evangelical fellowship 
and we now regularly look through every time there is an election for any kind of committee in the diocese, is there anyone who's able to stand for this? You know, we have people now on the Board of Education, on the Finance Committee, on Bishop's Council, in those positions of influence, on vacancy and C committee. So when we're appointing a new bishop, we know there will be some evangelical lay people in the room. Uh, I have a lot more to say about that, and you can find uh, quite a lot of that in a chapter in this very excellent book that's come out recently. Tom's not even looking. I'm writing notes about what you said. Um, uh, yeah, so I have a chapter in there about lay people in the Church of England, if you're interested in knowing a bit more about that. But as we close, one final biblical metaphor for the laity, the people of God, and this from Revelation 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Brothers and sisters, we are God's people, his precious bride, his shining city, his glorious temple, his Laos. Amen. Great, thanks, loves. I think we've got really plenty of time for questions, if people have any or maybe they don't, well, there any? I, I have not planted any questions, no, and I haven't put any on the screen for you to ask. Okay. But apparently Tom's thought of one all on his own. Um, <clears throat> you made quite a big uh, bit of the, the, of the laity being priests, mm. which is not a biblical term. We are a royal priesthood. Yes, that's true. And do you, I mean, uh, there's a, a book by, I think it's, Tom Grace, the priestly Catholicity of the Church, who um, it's all about the difference between the laity being a royal priesthood and individually priests. Do you think that's a significant difference? I struggle to see what a priesthood can be other than a group of priests, to be honest. Like, what would, what would a, a nation be if it weren't a lot of people belonging to the... Do you, do you see what I mean? I, I do take your point that this is all very corporate and I could have made more of that. Absolutely. It's, it's not... Um, you know, lots of those images, like the Stones image, you know, that, that is clearly a corporate image. We're being built together. Um, and it's not just about me as an individual stone. Um, and I think that that is true as well. You know, as a priesthood, that is part of our thing. But... But I do think it implies that we all have that priestly status. 
I don't know how you could be in the priesthood without having priestly status. Is it the number of sacrifices that you offer? So do, do we not offer one corporate sacrifice rather than... In Christ. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and I certainly said and I hope made clear we are not sacrifice offering priests. And I, I think that's certainly true. And you're right, Christ is our high priest and he offers the one sacrifice for us all. And may, maybe that is a, a more nuanced way of, of expressing that. I certainly don't want to imply that we individually are offering any kind of sacrifice. Please don't. George. Oh, go on then, Steve. Uh, this is more of an observation that might turn into a question, possibly, but I, I was really struck by that thing of the ordinariness. Yeah. Um, and I, um, I think I observed, no, I was going to say particularly in the evangelical sector, but maybe not just that, that there is, a, you know, we, we kind of put on a pedestal mm. the big mm. successful churches. Mm. And actually, it just really struck me this morning that our little medium-sized town, parish church on a council estate, is actually ordinary. Mm. It's full of ordinary people. And it's probably a better representation of the people of God as a result. Well, I, I, I couldn't comment on whether it's a better representation. It's a different representation, mm. but the ordinariness of it is mm. something... I, I, what struck me, the ordinariness of it is something to cherish. Yes, that's certainly true. Rather than something to to try to build some edifice or whichever, which inevitably, mm. you know, I'm, I'm just speaking for myself here, mm. you know, leads me down the sort of, you know, I want to leave a legacy kind of thing. Yeah. And actually, the legacy should all be crushed. So, yeah. but I, I don't know, you know. No, I think that. that's exactly right. And the legacy, you know, what, it, what is the work that survives? I mean, it's people, isn't it? It's ordinary people. You know, the legacy that survives isn't a name or a reputation or a, you know, great building project or, you know, uh, a course or, or whatever. None of it, those things get burnt up in the flames. What survives? What survives are the people that God cherishes. And so, you know, the work that you are doing, if you are in an ordinary place, in an ordinary church with very ordinary people, that is precious work in the kingdom. Um, and I think one of the things I meant to say but didn't was... A good test of that, how well you're doing on that, I think, is how well your church reflects your community. So if you live in and minister in a very well-off leafy suburb, I don't think it's unreasonable for you to have a disproportionate number of wealthy, intelligent, competent people, because, you know, probably houses in that place cost a fortune and, and you know, you, you're going to have those sort of people there. But if you live in a, a UPA, but your congregation is all made up of senior managers and executives, I'm going to say you're doing something wrong there. The people in your church should feel ordinary to the people in the community around them. You know, people in your community should be able to come into your church and feel like, oh yeah, this is for us. I fit in here in all the kind of ways that you'd expect to fit in anywhere else, you know, if you walked into the local pub or the wherever. Be ordinary, yeah. The reflection on the same subject. More of an observation than a question, but I'm sure you can make something out of it. Um, and it's more a sociological observation rather than an etymological fact, so I'm sure you can pick me up on that. But it's just there's this helpful distinction I've been using upon since lockdown, is the distinction between normal 
uh, and ordinary. Uh, it seems that normal is, is a set of expectations mm -hmm. uh, upon mm -hmm. which we are never satisfied or, or constantly feeling like we're failing. Mm -hmm. Whereas ordinary is providence. Mm -hmm. And we are, want to either take it for granted or undervalue it. And when normality was suspended in lockdown, it was interesting to move to start to appreciate ordinary things, yeah. uh, which I found quite wonderful. But at the same time, this tension, we need to get back to normal, or will there be a new normal? Mm. And then there's uh, these expectations and aspirations mm. start pressing in and weighing down again. And I think that sort of happens ecclesiologically as well, that there's this sort of normal that we've got completely wrong. Mm. Uh, that we think normally church should be full of all these gifted people doing all these wonderful mm. things uh, and thrive in it. And, and rather than ordinary, which is a sort of, there's a givenness to that. We accept what we're given and value it. So you're yeah. ordinary and precious uh, and accept that, that this is something that's been given by God yeah. and, and delight in it. Uh, so I think that that helps. I think, that's, I think that's really helpful. I think a baby's another really good example of that, isn't it? I mean, I will look at a room full of babies and they're basically all of the same, aren't they? Um, you know, they're, they're, all, they're all, you know, babies, aren't they? But every one of them is incredibly precious to its parents and they'll tell you all the ways in which their baby is, is you know, the most precious baby. And I think, you know, don't expect people in your church to be normal. I mean, because they're not. I'll tell you that, they're weird. I mean, people just are weird, aren't they? And, um, yeah, so definitely not normal, um, but ordinary. Ordinary and in, in individual and quirky and complicated and, and interesting ways. And, yeah, ordinary is just how things are, exactly, and who... Michael Horton's book, Ordinary, oh, yeah. picks up on your points about the ordinary graces. Yeah. And it's a really lovely read, really important. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Don't, don't ever feel that ordinariness is something um, to be disappointed in. But uh, yeah, like Steve said, it's something actually to be cherished and, and celebrated. Yeah. Ros, I have a question. Oh, yeah, go um, the, the epistles are mostly addressed to the laity, um, and every single epistle uh, addresses the issue of false teaching. Mm. So I was wondering what you had to say about actually what is it in terms of the responsibility of the laity to know the faith so well that they are able to spot false teaching yeah. um, because actually spotting a false teacher is the responsibility of, of the laity and it's, it's their responsibility mm -hmm. to react to that and how should laity respond yeah. to a false teacher to false teaching yeah good question um, I mean it's both isn't it so in the pastoral epistles which are much more clearly addressed to, to church leaders made very clear that it's their responsibility to guard the flock from the false teachers, and, and you get that with um, uh, Paul addressing the Ephesian elders, you know, guard um, the flock from the savage wolves that will even come from among you. So it is definitely the responsibility of the, the pastor and the, the, the elder, but, but if the pastor is the false teacher, who, who is there left to, to guard the lay people? Well, that is why we need lay people who are, um, you know, who, who have had the whole counsel of God to preach to them, who have been taught, who have been um, well pastored in order to be able to spot the false teacher that comes up among them. And I, and I think it is their responsibility. Um, it's complicated, and I, in the Church of England, I don't know precisely how much you can do about it. So you can certainly, at an informal level, 
if you have concerns, you know, the appropriate people, I think, normally to, to raise that would be the church wardens um, and, and, you know, to have really um, wrestled and, and thought about that. And, and there's a difference, isn't there, between someone who kind of makes a, a slip one Sunday morning or says something that's a new teaching, you say, I've never heard that before, and actually just go and, and ask and, and be helped to understand it. But, but if you can, you know, if you've got somebody who's persistently, clearly teaching heresy then I think you have to say, we, we won't have this in our pulpit. And I, I think church wardens are the people with responsibility uh, and authority to do that. You can't raise a clergy discipline measure over an issue of doctrine. So you couldn't do use that sort of process. But you could go to your uh, bishop and say, Bishop, we are very concerned with what is being taught here we think it is against the gospel, we think it is against Anglican orthodoxy, please will you intervene? Depending on your bishop, they may be more or less willing to do anything about that. And it may well be um, these days that there isn't much that can be done. And at that point, I think as lay people, the best thing you can do is go somewhere else. I, I say that having watched my mother struggled for 30 years in a church which has had variously more and less, you know, better and worse teaching. And, and she stays because she's like, because what else will happen if I go, nobody, you know, there'll be nobody and blah, blah, blah. You can't change, I think, as the church as a lay person if the minister is set against the gospel. And I think you have to be realistic about that and say actually my place in the people of God is precious and and therefore I need to go somewhere where I will be pastored and fed. Um, yeah, Lee, you have something to add to that? Yeah, the, the great piece by J.C. Rowling, equation, mm. which is in our book, Distinctive Principles... It is, it's on the books, so I meant to say that. ...you can get on the bookstore there, is rather bracing in what it says mm. about how the laity ought to be you know, taking their place, mm. but also what it says to incumbents... That, you know, um, if you ask the laity what's going on in the church more widely, they say, well, you know, um, uh, bishops and priests are all arguing about something or other all the time. We don't really know what it is. It's your responsibility, Vicar, to make sure that the people in your church understand all the arguments that are going on because they are vulnerable to it yeah. if they don't. Particularly the most vulnerable time is in, an is a, in a vacancy. Yeah when the laity have rightly now, as Ryle said, their place to have an influence over the appointment, they need to know at that vulnerable point about what they should be expecting to find out there in the wider church. If we don't teach them, it's not just that they're ignorant yeah. about it, it's that they, um, uh, they might be scared. And they might be so scared of what's out there um, about their new incumbent, that they'll take just anybody who looks vaguely similar mm. to the last vicar. Or they might just want the curate to carry on because that feels safe. Mm. Um, so I've or seen or that these days, very often, the yeah. person that the bishop recommends. Yes, exactly. Which, which may be terrific, but mm. also, if, if they're just going to do what he says, they're not really fulfilling their responsibility to think for themselves and, and have their own influence. Exactly. In that. So I think it's really, it's a bracing piece yeah. for, for clergy to read about our responsibility towards mm. the laity, but also a, a, an encouragement and inspiration for laity to, 
to yeah. grasp that place that they, they yeah. rightly have. So really it's greatly quoted that. Thank you. Yeah, Rob. Um, what do you think stops laity just becoming consumers of church? I mean, I want to say the Holy Spirit. I, I, I don't really understand quite how people fall into becoming of consumers of church, to be honest, because it seems so clear to me that, that that's not... You know, we are part of the family. You're not a consumer of your family. We, you know, we are part of the body. I don't have parts of my body that are consumers without, you know, maybe an appendix. But, you know, in general, parts of my body have to work for it. Um, I, I think some churches perhaps fall into bad habits and a bad culture where that's, where it seems like the normal thing huh, is to not be actively participating in the family and only those weirdly keen people do. And I guess if you've got into that kind of culture, it's then quite easy for new people to come in and think, oh, well, that's what most people do. That's all I need to do. So one thing I think that we perhaps could be doing more proactively is, is making sure that there are always obvious ways for people to be participating and serving. I, I, for, a, for a couple of years, I went to a, a very large, uh, big student church, not, not when I was a student, much more recently than that. And one of the things I remember thinking, and I wasn't really in any kind of state to be doing a whole lot, but I remember thinking, I, I, you know, I could probably make tea and coffee. That was sort of about the level I was at at that point. And for the whole two years I was there, there was never a call for any kind of help with anything. And I, I mentioned this to, to somebody I knew who was, had been at the church much more long, much longer than I had and was involved in doing things. She's like, yeah, no, I think they, those kind of calls for help kind of go out through the home groups or through the small groups or, or, or people get asked. And I'm like, hmm. I, I don't think that's a really good way of building a culture. I think, you know, you want to be careful. You don't necessarily want to do a, a sort of public call, could anyone come and teach our Sunday school? Because you want to make sure the people you're inviting to do that are people who are suitably equipped to do it. But there are definitely things that anyone could come and do. You don't need a special gift to clean toilets or make tea or put out chairs or whatever. So I think making it really clear that there are needs and that everyone is expected to serve in some way. And, you know, with the caveats that for some people, you know, what, what they're able to do is pray. You know, there will be some people who would desperately love to serve, but actually their health and their life situation means that, it, you know, they shouldn't come and stack chairs. Um, but, yeah, making it clear that the, those are the expectations... At my church, we use the word church family a lot. And I think that really helps. You know, if you're part of the church family, then you think of yourself differently. You know, you're not a, a consumer or a client or someone who comes. You're a family member. And so, you know, we, we want you to come and be part of what we do. We do, a, a, every couple of years, a, a church family weekend away and the expectation with that is everybody will be involved in helping at some level 
you know, everybody who's able will be on the rotor for washing up and doing that. Some people will be involved in organising a game or doing an activity. And again, just that sort of we're doing all of it together um, may help. But I don't know, others may have wisdom on how to... Because it is a problem. I, it's just not one that I really understand quite how it happens. Steve, were you going to no, add something to that? that? And the flip side of that mm. is that this coming Sunday... We're going to announce that on Sunday week there will be no children's work at church because yeah. we don't have people for right. So it's kind of, we're not going to run the children's work and run the team into the ground. Yeah. They, for whatever reason, it can't be done. But it, it does kind of, I think it's another important message that we need help. Yeah. And if we don't do stuff. stuff, if we don't step up and do stuff, it won't happen. Yeah. And, and people, and I do think sometimes this is harder in a larger church because there's more capacity to just sort of cover stuff. And if you're in a smaller church, you know, if, if somebody moves on, you know, our, our choir mistress stood down a couple of years ago, th there wasn't anyone who said that, so now we don't have a choir. And it's fine, but people, people see that, you know, if someone isn't doing something, it doesn't happen. Uh, Ian, were you going to add something there? I don't know if I'll add anything. <laughs> uh, Are you going to tell me that it's dinner time? No. <laughs> 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 coffee next time. <laughs> um, no, I was just going to say, I think the title, the title you said about ordinariness, kind yeah. of just agreeing with it. Like, I, I suppose you can see some of our church family want things to be very professional, yeah. slick. You see a church down the road, they've got an age group we haven't got, therefore we're doing it wrong or something. Um, and when it's professional, not everyone can do it. Yeah. Not everyone can do everything. Yeah. But then you kind of end up sitting back and having it done to you because you don't have the skill level. To yeah, enjoy. and you don't feel you can offer because you couldn't do it as well as someone else. And that's true in all kinds of respects, isn't it? It may be tech, it may be music. You know, you may be a church that's having to, to play music on recording and sing along with it because you don't have musicians. People see that there's a hole there. So, you know, someone turns up at that church and, and is a musician, they, they kind of feel like, oh, well, maybe I could offer. But also... Part of it is just accepting that those are the gifts that God has given your church. And he hasn't made a mistake about that. He knows what you need. So it's okay if you can't run a toddler group. It's okay if at your church you have to stop the youth group. People may feel that those gaps very strongly, and it may prompt someone to step up and say, maybe actually I could help with that, or we could put together a team and I'll, I'll coordinate that. But also sometimes it's okay to stop doing things, if you haven't got the people to do them, God probably doesn't need you to do them. Should we stop there? Um, oh, you've got one more, Willard. I was just going to say, my experience, I don't know if it resonates with mm. other people, is um, sort of married lay people tend mm. to get prioritised and treated better than single lay people. <coughs> Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a thing in some churches. I was at one church years and years ago where all the home groups were run by married couples. And it was very hard for single people to do it because most of us didn't have homes that were big enough to have a home group in. And I think that was the sort of justification when I asked about it once. And it's kind of, you know, that, that's not really the basis on which you should be thinking about who, who leads your home group, is how big is their sitting room. Um, you know, you might want to think about who hosts your home group on the basis of how big their sitting room is, but they don't need to be new people running it. So I think sometimes it's, it's a kind of lazy sort of thinking. Um, sometimes it's just happened historically and nobody's really thought beyond that. And then, so then when someone's stepped down, it's always been a married couple, so they've looked for a married couple 
who would step into their shoes. I think it's worth challenging all the time. Not just... Um, yeah, I think maybe sometimes... Well, I don't know. My experience is it maybe gets a bit easier as you get older. The, the sort of younger single person maybe is slightly more easily overlooked than the sort of middle-aged single person. But, yeah, it's a bad thing. And if you run a church, remember that single people have gifts and should be encouraged to serve. And, and don't presume you know what those gifts are. You know, if it's a single, single woman, I mean, don't just assume that she'll want to run your crash. I'll, I'll just throw that out there. I, I once helped with a crash and I was not asked back after apparently you're not supposed to tell three-year-olds that someone might die. Apparently, apparently, yeah, anyway. You're not supposed to threaten them. Right? I mean, I threatened the child, I threatened its doll, but apparently that was still not a dumb thing. On that note, I think we have just enough time to sing Come Now Fountain of Every Breath Sing before we go for coffee.